Episode 59 of Outlaw, Outlaw, out, Moped Outlaws. <laughs> Coffee, please. I need some gum. Do you have any gum? No. Damn. And if I did, how would I get it to you? Through the lens, deeply into the gum zone. Oh, so now you just told people we're not live in the studio. Yep, we're recording outside the Moped Outlaws studio this morning. Where we always are. <laughs> hey, but we thought maybe we wouldn't be on this episode. There was a chance because my brother Mark pings me and goes, Hey, Dave Chappelle is in Santa Rosa. Do you want to go see him? Well, just like when someone asks if you're a god, when someone asks, Do you want to go see a god? The answer is yes. Yeah, we went and saw Dave Chappelle on Thursday night, and we were pretty confident about going to see him. Yes, we were. We yeah, took we were. our recording device. We took Greg's recording device in the hopes that we were going to get an audience with the Dave. Yeah, and we even went up to his security and pitched the idea, and you know, we hung around and we were busily well, arguing about my relationship when Dave walked right by us on his way into the venue. Damn it. <laughs> but, you know, we did talk to the head of security. We made it that far. We made it right to the final gate. Yeah, and he said he would pass along um, our stuff. In fact, why don't you call him right now and say, what the hell happened? I deleted his message after we didn't hear. Like, I pinged him three times after we saw the show. and Nothing. I was like, all right, uh, that's pretty clear. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, we, we we had a fantastic time. Dave Fuck, is yeah. an amazing performer. His openers were great, and uh, we had a glorious time. And we were fantasizing the whole time that we were going to get him on this podcast to talk to us about the subject that we're going to talk about next week. Yeah. But it didn't happen. So no. we'll just have to talk about it ourselves. And I guarantee you we're not as funny as Dave, but. Oh, my God. We I was are. thinking about that again. Like, I've been really relishing. First of all, one of the things that just fills me with giddy joy is that was reminiscent of my teen and 20 years where friends would just paint and go, hey, you want to? And it, it's not logical. You can't afford it. There's no time for it. And you're like, fuck, yeah, yeah, yeah we're doing yeah. that. Yeah, there's a certain amount of uh, willingness to step into the unknown that's really thrilling. And when you live life somewhat like that, um, you can have some really great adventures. And we definitely had some great adventures. Yeah. And that like was when we were sitting, we were sitting at the backstage entrance and uh, his openers was Don Williams, Don. No, Rawlings. Um, yeah. Darnell, Dar Darnell Rawlings. Is it, let's see, Rawlings. I, yeah, we could laugh about. Um, I don't remember names. That was anyway. Good. The Lincoln drove Darnell, up. Darnell, D O N N E L L. 
And he was the, the middle crew got out and the cloud of weed permeated my nose. It was like, and I was like, Oh, they're having fun. <laughs> That's so yeah. funny. Cause I didn't even smell it. Yeah. Yeah. And my but I did are- recognize him because I just saw him on the Snoop special, which I told you, like I'd just seen him on the Snoop special that's on Netflix. And yeah. yeah. And he was on Fat Tuesday. I thought it was uh, one of the brothers from Fat Tuesday, but no. It was a lot of fun. He was brilliant. Um, he was fine. And I, uh, I used one of his lines about the four hook bra with my girlfriend the other night and she tackled. <laughs> All right. And and part of the fun of going to live comedy is that you get to, you know, steal some of their lines in real life. Like you go the next day and you say funny stuff to people <laughs> and, and it isn't like you're performing it in front of an That's audience, true. but man, now you've got some funny stuff to say. Oh, well, that kind of ties into next week's episode. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, but we'll get to that next week. Just a little teaser. We'll do a callback on that one, Mark. Put a tack in it. (laughs) Put a tack in my head. Put a tack in that thing you just showed. Put a pin in it. So Art's waving frantically from the booth. He's saying we need to get get back on topic. topic. (laughs) Like, come on, Dave Chappelle. Fucking Dave Chappelle. Oh, my God. He was yeah. so hilarious. And at one point, he was like, he started talking about marriage, and he asked a couple in the front, and he he got them both talking. And at one, what did he say? He said, I wasn't asking you, Mike. He was talking to the wife. And, oh, God. he No, uh, I think it was, I recall it being the opposite, where he said, like, what's your name? And then he answered, and then he goes, what's, your, what's her name? And and he's all like quiet while I'm talking to the you know men talking here, and right. then he did, he said, and quiet. Then, there's, there's cis men talking here, right, right, right. And then later on, when he went back to them, and he was talking to her, and she said something. He said, "I should ask your husband." <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! And then drinking the tequila with them, and I've only yes. got one glass. Oh, anyway. So much fun. Yeah. And, and getting up there and the giddiness in, in both Greg's and my attitude as we were driving up there, it reminds me of how much fun life is when you just go ahead and go for it. And uh, we had no reasonable expectation of actually getting into the show because it was sold out. Yeah. But we just decided we, we're getting in. And we even agreed that if we couldn't get tickets, we were going to sneak in. And it looked like we might have been able to sneak in. There was at one point where there was a door open. We probably could have snuck in. But they would have eventually – well, no one checked our ticket stubs. So there, w- if we'd done it right, there would have been a way for us to have pulled that off. we'd gotten actually inside. But I thought about that because I went to the restroom afterwards. Like I thought – I did anyway, long story short, I went upstairs because the line downstairs – Mm. It's like f that, and they were Corey, who we met, who was in head of managing security for Luther Burbank. Um, he was upstairs, and like he was on the walkie-talkie, is upstairs clear? Like they were, they, they were, were on it. They were on it. Yeah, yeah. He's so a I, professional. He was definitely a professional. He was really courteous to us too, considering we were just a bunch of nobodies trying to get access to Dave. Yeah. And then I forget the other gentleman's name that we talked to after Corey, who hooked us up with Jake. That's right. And Jake was the head guy. What's interesting, like when Jake came up, 
he had that kind of presence where you just, you don't need to put on a show because you just know whatever goes down, you've got it handled. Yeah. Yeah. The <laughs> tried and true professionalism that goes with millions and millions of hardcore rock and roll shows and comedy. And, you know, he's probably mm-hmm. seen every attempt to sneak into a place that's imaginable. And at this show, it was, it was, you know, Dave was, had been threatened. So there were bomb sniffing yeah. dogs and a heavy police presence, yeah. which is ironic. It is. Yeah. But, uh, and yeah. yeah. If you get a chance to go see Dave Chappelle and you don't go like you're just weak. Well, he's a Mount Rushmore. He's definitely like, yeah, it's like seeing George Carlin, Richard Pryor. You're you're seeing one of the just champions and the whole level, like even though Rawlings, who we just spoke of, the middle guy was good. He was good. But the level just lifted and stayed there. That's part of the important part. Stayed there. And it felt effortless. It, It. it did not feel like Dave was working a routine. It felt like Dave was just talking to us. Yeah. There was no like, uh, and with Rollins, there was kind of a clarity that he was on a path that he was working his routine or whatever. And that math, that level of mastery, that's it. That's what sets people apart is that they, they, they're covering ground and it just seems effortless and it doesn't seem like it's contrived on any level or planned on any level. And there were aspects of Dave's show where he, it really was clear that he was just doing it off the cuff. In fact, there's a a big sign when you go in, that's like no talking, no yelling, no no heckling. (laughs) And uh, Dave, and of course, Greg and I were not about to do any of that stuff, but of course, there was a point where a couple people did. And it was part of one of the funniest parts of the show because the way yeah. Mama could see my dick. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's so funny. Yeah. Yeah. It, was... it, it reminded Greg and I just how far we have to go, but how within reach <laughs> being funny is. It's really effortless. Being funny is about effortlessness and not trying too hard and just saying that uncomfortable thing that's right on the tip of your tongue. Yeah. Yeah. Next to the coal sore. <laughs> Dude, that was good. I like yeah, it. Like, All right, I shaved my head. Sympathy. <clears throat> Art's going to fire us if we don't get on topic. Well, we do have to acknowledge today is a very auspicious day. Um, it's probably the one year anniversary of our show. Is it's that the other the hand, right? The right hand, right? And what we're talking about right is finger. It's, oh, it's his middle finger. Yeah, it was this I thought one. thought it was his ring finger. Nope. Um, for those of you who can't see us, we are holding up our hands and folding over the, the middle finger or the F finger, for, if, for lack of a better description, because today is Jerry Garcia's, or would have been Jerry Garcia's 80th birthday. 80th. That is an auspicious day. And he only made it to 53. Yeah, of his own choosing. Well, no, I mean, a heart attack wasn't necessarily uh, something. Is that really so what he was, it was? He was in rehab trying to get healthy. He didn't want I, th- I heard he died in his car. No, he did not die in his car. I heard he was shooting smack in his car and overdosed. No, that's not what happened. That is what I've had in my head this whole. Okay, so many, many. Gary years. was actually had been at Betty Ford when he died. Um, he had been at Benny Ford for several weeks, um, kicking heroin for God knows how many of the umpteenth time. 
And while he was at Betty Ford, there was apparently a deadhead there who was also busily trying to get clean. And he wouldn't just, he just wouldn't leave Jerry alone. Like there was all of this, like, and you know, in that setting, you're supposed to be uh, just a normal Joe and everybody's in group therapy together. Right. And so there's no, I mean, Betty Ford, there's some special accommodations made, but Jerry just finally, from what I've heard, he got sick of it. And so he moved out to, uh, West Marin to a facility in West Marin and was, was working on his rehab there. And he's had a heart attack in the middle of the night. Oh, the poppy farm out in West Marin, not the poppy farm. <laughs> it's actually, it was really good drug uh, rehab facility. It's beautiful there. Oh, I know what you're talking about out in Bolinas Ridge. No, no, no. It's, it's, it's closer to, um, um, no, way out, like way. It's still Bolinas Ridge, but it's way the. Other. No, 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 no. It's you it's sure? not out there. Yeah, yeah, it's in in one of the valleys. I I if I'd looked it up, I'd know the name, and I should know the name. But of course, I'm 59, and I can't. Oh, I'm thinking sure. of the cancer place. Yeah, probably. Anyway, he was there, and he had a heart attack in in the middle of the night. Wow. And that's all all that happened. He just. <laughs> had Have you ever to, heard that? It wasn't the heroin that killed him. It was the cheeseburgers. Have you ever heard that Kyle Hurst song, Sorry You Had to Go? No. Uh, it's really good. Yeah. And a lot of people were sorry. In fact, um, they I still are. The memorial and Wavy Gravy says, What we got here is some good grief. But the point isn't that Jerry died or how he died. It's, it's how amazing he was and what an amazing legacy that on his 80th birthday, uh, literally 27 years after he died, people are still celebrating him and his, what he did. And uh, I had some really great experiences in my life that were the result of him. And I, I had a whole opportunity, like on one level, you could say that the reason I had a career at Lucasfilm was because of Jerry Garcia. And that the way that story works is I was working in a nightclub with my uncle who was doing an amazing reggae show. And he had a person named Stefan G who was doing um, some amazing lighting effects and things. And Stefan G had gotten um, the opportunity to work at the Warfield for a Jerry Garcia band show to provide visuals. And he invited me because he knew I was kind of a deadhead. And he said, do you want to come and work the show? And I'm like, yeah. And I showed up there and um, we ended up, <clears throat> there was kind of a falling out between him and the management, but I was standing there and the, the, the guy turned to me and said, well, there's still a show to do. Who are you? And I'm like, oh, I'm Mark. And he's on, you know, you, Mark went and he's like, yeah, Doug went. Is that your dad or something? I'm like, no, that's my uncle. And he said, well, we still have a show to do. And I'm like, all right, let's pull it together. And uh, so we, we basically spent the next six hours building up this beautiful light show in the lobby of the Warfield so that during the set breaks, the clientele would come out and buy drinks and hang out and get to see visuals from Bill's archive. Like there were stuff we showed at those Jerry shows over the next couple of years. I was involved in that for a while. And I worked through an internship in that capacity was with the archive department at PGP. And so I got to work the Jerry shows at the Warfield, Jerry Garcia band shows at the Warfield for about a two year run. Uh, I could have done a few more after that, but at that point I was, um, you know, busy starting my career at Lucasfilm and I wasn't able to go as often, but they were amazing. And we, one of the things we did was we set up a blue screen on the wall and we put a camera at the top of the stairs so that when you walked up, 
you saw a big screen TV with you um, inserted keys keyed in chroma keyed into the super psychedelic background light show. So as people were walking up the stairs to get to their yeah. seats in the, in the balcony, they could see themselves in this superimposed on this really psychedelic background. And we had all these visuals from the old days that we had gotten digitized and put on um, vi- videotape, not digitized. Cause in those days it was still analog, but it was a lot of fun. Um, we smoked a lot of weed doing that <laughs> stuff. It was really fun. And it was a great crew. And um, that night, I worked really hard and through the whole run. And then the guy said, hey, you know, you did a good job. I'd like to offer you an internship at the BGP archives. And <laughs> That's okay. with- hey, you worked really hard. We'd like you to work more for free. <laughs> Well, and he offered me a chance to learn a bunch yeah. of stuff, too. And uh, James Olness was his name, and he turned out to be one of a great mentor of mine. And he taught me a lot about video technology and about the concert industry and about mostly about archiving techniques. Mm. And so that Jerry Garcia show landed me a two-year internship at BGP in their archives, which was one of the main things that was on my resume that got me the interview at Lucasfilm when I worked at Lucasfilm. And that was a 21-year run working at Lucasfilm. So, Were you married at the time you were doing BGP? Mm-hmm. It was tough. I was worrying. working as an ice cream store manager, right. going to school. And because I had to be in school to go to have an internship and then working on my days off my Mondays and Tuesdays in San Francisco. So it was literally seven days a week. My wife wasn't seeing me. Did that create and, trouble? Uh, it did. She began to resent me quite a bit and started drinking. <laughs> <laughs> and there the seeds were planted. <laughs> Yeah, but at the same time, it benefited her a lot, too. You know, I mean, yeah. I was very happy. And that started a long chapter in my personal development that led to me really living a very fulfilled life, what was which culminates now in, in producing this podcast. What was the organist name for Jerry Garcia Band? Oh, uh, Melvin Seals. Melvin Seals. That guy was rad. Yeah, and he's still around. He still plays in the Jerry Garcia yeah. Band, and they still do shows. Right. That's he also cool. performed with Merle Saunders, who... Um, was a really great keyboardist too in the early days of the Jerry Garcia band. Isn't Merle Saunders uh, responsible for that piece on what's that, you know, that um, past the piece. Ooh, I'm not sure. No, that sounds like, is that James Brown past the piece? I don't know, but he played B3 organ and there was for a long time, he and Jerry were good friends. And there was a point where he and Jerry weren't working together. And so, um, Jerry hired Melvin Seals to play in the Jerry Garcia band. And that was the era I saw. I basically saw shows from, I think it was late October, 91. I worked Jerry Garcia shows every Warfield run for the next two years. Wow. And you met Jerry? I did meet Jerry, but not at the Warfield. Um, I met Jerry when I was working at the Sweetwater in Mill Valley, what's known as the Sweetwater Music Hall. And back then it was owned by Jeannie Patterson. Yes, it was. And I was working uh, at Mama's Royal Cafe as a a cook. And then I had another gig that was part time doing door at doing the door at the Sweetwater. 
So I was, you know, taking the money from the patrons and giving them tickets and keeping the door closed during music because there was a issue with the neighbors. And I did that for about two years. And, um, you know, Jeannie was really generous with me and, you know, but one of the things that would happen at the Sweetwater, there's a guy named John Goddard who owned this music store called Village Music in Mill Valley. And it was world renowned for his yeah. the vinyl collection. People would come like people like Elvis Costello and Mick Jagger and Keith Richard. Well, I don't know if Whenever, Nick was whenever they were in the Bay Area, they would come to yeah. Village Music to peruse the, the vinyl collection because this John Goddard almost played a um, show in Village Music, like when it was closing. Like you know, he played a show in there. That's a very good show. Mick Jagger did? No, Elvis Costello. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. He did. Like um, it was like the day before it closed, or like it so was. A- the Sweetwater and John Goddard's Village Music were institutions, musical yeah. institutions in the Mill Valley. And being part of the Sweetwater crew was an amazing thing. And once a year, John would throw his Christmas party at the yeah. Sweetwater, and he would basically yeah. close the place down. You couldn't buy tickets. It was invite only. And John would get, like, the most amazing artists at these things. So one year he got David Grisman and Jerry Garcia to perform their acoustic dog music before it had been released as a CD oh, wow. and before people were aware that he they had gotten back that. together with, with David Grisman to do um, this acoustic album. And so I was that night, I was asked to be the stage door guy. Oh, wow. For and the green room? For the green room and to do make sure that uh, whoever was on the stage guest list got in. And that was because I knew who the regulars were and who would be kind of trying to snake their way in. And they knew me and they they, when I said no, they knew no was going to stand. Right. Much like we were just talking about with our our security guy at the um, the Burbank. But the 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 thing was, I was also asked to come down before the show when they served dinner because I, they needed help bringing the plates into the artists in the backstage. And they knew that I was the kind of guy that wasn't going to fawn over the artists. Like I'd already proven that I wasn't the, the guy that was going to like fawn over you. And, and so um, John Goddard was a big fan of new Orleans style cooking. And so they had, um, jambalaya red beans and rice and cornbread for this christmas show and um so i took the plates down and i had three plates and because i was in the restaurant business i knew how to carry three plates down a flight of stairs and i I, and they were like going there and i'm like all right and i handed one to i think it was the percussionist and i'm sorry i don't remember his name and the second plate i handed to jerry and then the third plate i handed to david and as i was turning to leave because i was really discreet like i just handed them their plates and i turned around to walk away there was a tug on my t-shirt and i turned around and it was jerry and jerry's like hey can i have another piece of cornbread (laughs) ma'am and i'm like you bet and i went right upstairs and i got a paper towel and i brought him two more pieces of cornbread and brought it down to him. And that was my one moment of <laughs> interacting with Jerry Garcia. And I look back at it as really cool because, you know, he served up such rich musical tasty treats. And so for one short moment in my life, I got to satisfy his desire for a little extra cornbread. I have a John Goddard story before we dive into more Grateful Dead stuff. 
because I used to think he was such a surly guy. I was kind of afraid of him, but I was also, as you said, living in the town that had the world's most renowned record store, one of them. And I remember once he was there behind the counter and I came up with a Prince 12 inch and a Limeliners, Limeliners, um, album. And he looked at them both. He was like, all right. And from that moment on, we hit it off. <laughs> He's like, this guy's got eclectic taste. I like yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. It's cool. It's like, you're not just another pube. <laughs> and then, like, he introduced me to some blue stuff. Were you there at the door when, um, God damn it, John Lee Hooker played before he started really going downhill? <clears throat> he, um, I did not see the, the night that Santana sat in with John Lee Hooker. I didn't see it. Wait. All I remember is the show was fire. Yeah. It was like. He did a bunch of shows there. He was friends with Jeannie. Yeah. That show. Like I heard after that show, someone saw him in the city like a year later and his health had depreciated a bit. And he wasn't. Like I saw Southern blues, that kind of crossroads. Like, oh, I think there's, you might have made a deal with someone because there is fire and coal spitting out of your eyes. And he just, was the real deal. There's no question about it. John Lee Hooker was the real deal and a true blues man for sure. And, and to, to grace our presence in White Mill Valley in the late and mid nineties. Well, that was the thing with that Sweetwater place. That was like, were you there when JJ Kale was playing? And, yep, um, I got to see JJ Kale with yeah, and what's his name the, from Dire Straits dropped in. Mark Knopfler. Mark Knopfler. Yeah, yeah, that was so good. Yep. And then of yep. course the the Christmas jug band shows. Yep, I got to see a few of those. Yeah, um, it's interesting too because um, one of the main sort of people in the Grateful Dead scene was a guy named Owsley Stanley, or affectionately Owsley Bear Stanley. And Bear uh, was world renowned for helping design and build the Wall of Sound, but also for being one of the leading manufacturers of LSD when it was still legal. Yes, sir. And he was a, a savant of a person. Like when he got involved and interested in something, he found out everything he possibly could about it. And so when he started making LSD, it's, it was one of the most purest uh, um, LSDs available. And, you know, he made some money doing it and was able to then use that to fund the Grateful Dead sound system called the Wall of Sound. And he kind of helped the dead and managed the dead for a while. And wasn't was, he the first who made huge arena sound worth listening to? Well, the Wall of Sound arguably could be considered the first um, That's arena right. sound system. Right. But ultimately, that technology became... Um, something that was adapted by a, well, there's this company Alembic that worked closely with the dead on the guitar side. And so the signal of what the guitars did and how they went through the PA and all that was kicked around a lot by all, all Owsley. But there was another group um, which was called um, ultrasound, which was founded by a guy named um, Harold. Ooh. And I knew his last name five That's seconds good. ago. Uh, Dan check Her- Anyway, he was a really good guy too. Um, Mr. Dan was a really sweet guy. And I got to work with him on the Jerry shows. Cause I had to go 
pull PA stuff for the auditorium when we were in, and the, the, of course, ultrasound work those shows. But back to Owsley, there was a Owsley liked a lot of country music, and there was a lot of sort of country music that went through um, the Sweetwater too. And yeah. by country, I mean real, like authentic roots style, not country rock. And one night, I was working the door there, and I would typically stand outside because people would walk in and open the door and I had my, it was my job not to let that happen. And so at one point um, this person came out in the middle of a song and was like, I just need a, a break. And I was like, yeah, I know how it is. It's, it gets loud in there. And he started talking to me about how this jewelry that he would make. And I said, Oh, that's amazing. And let me see it. And so it was this incredible, Grateful Dead jewelry, like the steal your face thing and a couple other things. And I ended up having this really sweet conversation with the guy and it turned out, I found out later that that was Owsley Bear Stanley because the, oh. the Owsley made all this incredible jewelry wow. and he was there that night. But because I had no clue who he was at the time, I was just relating to him on a personal down to earth level. And so he had the comfort of not being a celebrity <laughs> with me and also just being able to talk. And he was like, do you want to buy one? And I'm like, man, I, I would really like to buy one. And he's like, well, the, you can have this thing for three fifty. And the thing he was, it was this beautiful steal your face belt buckle. And I wished I'd had the money. I wanted to buy it, but I, there was no way. I mean, I, the reason I was working at the door and at the restaurant was to just barely, I was just barely making it to keep that weed flowing through your body. Yeah. You know, I could always find a way to buy a quarter uh, of the, the sense of Mia, uh, even when rent was due. Have um, I told you the Jim Marshall story I have at mama's? Uh, no, I don't think so. But this yeah. is so anyway, I got to meet Owsley and he was part of the grateful dead scene. And that, I got to have a really right. sweet conversation with him that was unencumbered by celebrity and bullshit. Do you Go remember on. your, well, this is Jim Marshall. I'll tell very quickly. Jim Marshall, the famous rock photo photographer very who very famous. Yeah. Like jazz and rock and pretty much yeah. most also a real iconoclast, a real kind of maverick kind of a guy. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, there's a documentary. I think it's on Apple TV if you want to know about him, mm -hmm. but you know, he's the famous Johnny cash flipping off the camera. Yep. The last Beatles show, the, you know, Dylan cover where he's kicking the tire down the street. Like this fucking guy. I fucking love Jim Marshall. He and Annie, like they're two photographers. Right? Like, Annie Leibowitz. Yeah. Like when I see their shit, I just go crazy. And he happened to come into mama's for lunch and he was with this woman. I didn't have any idea what he looked like at the time. Mm -hmm. And I see them flipping through a portfolio of his photographs. I was like, oh, fucking Jim Marshall. Oh, man. I just start gushing. And she goes, oh, you like Jim Marshall? I'm like, yeah, man. I'm naming off photographs. And then she goes, oh, that's Jim Marshall right there. And she points to him. I'm like, and uh, long story short, he gave me um, one of his photographs, the one of Miles Davis in the boxing ring leaning against, and he, it's signed. So, um, yeah. Yeah. At one point, I went into the um, pawn shop in downtown San Rafael, and there was a whole slew of framed Jim Marshall photographs that someone had gotten and wow. decided to pawn and then didn't come back for. Ooh, ooh. Yeah. I wonder if they were signed because that was this. When was I working at Mama's? It must have been mid 80s or maybe no it was 90s it was early 90s 
And at that time, he wasn't signing stuff anymore. But then... Well, my first days at Mama's also led to my first Grateful Dead show, which was when Mama's was on the other side of the building. And Mama's is this really great um, brush place, another Mill Valley institution that's no longer with us. Right. Um, And it was run by a real mentor of mine, someone who helped me when I was a teenager graduating high school and gave me a job and gave me a place to crash while I got my first apartment. And guy really taught me a lot about that was Richard Nixon. Um, No, his name was Spencer Moore and uh, big Spencer ran mamas and, and uh, Oh God. Was big Spencer a mentor to you? Yeah, for sure. Wow. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Um, and I forget where we were going with this all of a sudden. Uh, well, you said that was your first Grateful Dead show. Was oh, right. So uh, across the hallway from Mama's was this place called the the Port Deli. Oh, my God. And the two we had friends that, that worked um, there, Paul and Michelle. And Paul and Michelle, um, Paul worked at the Grateful Dead ticket office. And at that um, time, I was just not even really a fan of the dead. I'd known people in high school that were fans of theirs, and I didn't really like them the people. Um, and so I wasn't really that into the dead because the people that were going to that. Sh- to were you like the grateful dead are dead and more grateful? Well, whatever. I wasn't into it, but then Paul and I were ended up in a band together called commander casual and the cool crack crusaders. And so I started listening more and more to the dead in, in a neutral way. And, uh, you know, Paul could occasionally get extra tickets, but, Generally, he didn't because he didn't want to abuse the privilege. And so um, one year he said, I have a couple of extra and he do you want to go? And it was at the Henry Kaiser Auditorium in um, downtown. Oakland, And I believe it was in September of um, like 86 or something like that. It was early on. And I went to that show and I took. Uh, MDMA for the first time. I'd never taken any um, MDMA before. And that was an awesome time. I had a great time and the show was great. And from that on point on, and you know, I started to really listen more intently to the dead and get more involved with it. And, and Paul of course is a brilliant, brilliant guitarist. And, and yeah. in Commander, Commander Casual, he took his knowledge of Grateful Dead and sound, and he would just really get these great tones out of his guitar. And so, you know, Paul used to coach me about how to get tickets through the ticket office by coloring a beautiful envelope because they would do these mail order things. And the the cooler your envelope was, the more likely it would get picked out of the stack to get the tickets. And so I would do the occasional buy and, and go see dead shows. And once in a while, Paul had extras. And, oh, man, it was it was an amazing thing to really start to finally sink my teeth into that music. But. I was also wary of being a deadhead, right? <laughs> and because Paul was a deadhead. He, he, he and what. Michelle were hardcore deadheads. Right. And, you know, at that point, I've been, I've always been reticent about adopting the mantle of something that's not really true for me, but still wanting to participate and have a good time. So I would, I, even to this day, even though I probably am a deadhead on some level, yeah, trouble at barbecue claim to be a deadhead because I think of deadheads, they're a a very devoted, dedicated bunch. And I admire and uh, think that's a a beautiful thing. And so to claim that for myself seems um, like I appreciate the grateful dead. And I went to a lot of shows, but um, and I met Jerry, 
Um, and I worked some of their shows and stuff. And I, you know, all of that. Supported his, his music? I supported his uh, cornbread habit. And... Uh, <laughs> Which is really just a vehicle for butter when you think about it. And um, <laughs> and sugar. Yeah. Anyway. So, yeah, through Paul, I really got to appreciate the Grateful Dead quite a bit. And um, then later on after, you know, I went to a New Year's show with my, at that time, she wasn't even my girlfriend, but she was later became my wife. And I went to a show, <laughs> I got New Year's tickets and I had two extras. And no so way. I invited um, the two girls that I thought the most of at the time. I invited uh, a woman named Nicole Apostoli, who runs a company. Oh, you've, company you've told Fresh. this story before. Yeah. And you were leaning towards Nicole. Right. And then something happened and you were like, oh, actually. Well, but later, after after that night, after right. we both had fun and, 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 and everything, she clued me in that Mary actually was the one right. who really liked me. Right. And I ended up marrying Mary. Um, anyway, so the Grateful Dead <laughs> inadvertently Mary. led me to being married, right? And um, it turned out that Mary also knew someone who was – a friend with Paul who worked at the ticket office as well. All right. And so there was a period of time where Mary and I were like one step removed from the inner circle of the grateful dead. Like we were close enough that we could ask for tickets and get them if we wanted. Right. But we weren't in the inner Even circle New Year's shows. Yeah. And we went to a couple of new Year's shows after that. And that was fun. I um, worked with their manager, John. Um, I'm forgetting his last name. Butler. Also. No, uh, no, John J oh, and British guy. Oh yeah. Yeah. Cutler, John Cutler. No, God darn it. Yeah, no, it's John Cutler. No, name. it isn't. Hold on. Yeah. All right. Well, while Greg looks this up, I'll tell the story about being married to my, my sweetheart. And there was this time where our, our, our tall friend, Mike Healy, was living and working in this uh, amazing recording uh, rehearsal space in, in 101. McIntyre. John McIntyre. M-C-I-N-T-I-R-E. John right. McIntyre. Well, I, I never met John McIntyre. Early 70s. And, uh, yeah, he passed away in his home in Stinson Beach. Anyway, so, I, yeah. Anyway, so a friend, Mike Healy, had uh, decided he was going full music, and he had rented this really cool space. And so one a year for Halloween, he was going to throw a Halloween music party there. And it was off the hook. Like my band, Commander Casual, played, and I forget the other people. Who the band played. I was in played there with Neil, Peter, Neil, the, the um, Puff Pods. The Puff Pods played there, too? Yeah, I remember that. Awesome. Well, Rachel Tree and I were kind of hooking up, and I remember Liz showed up and was like, "Hey, what the fuck's going on?" I'm like, "Yeah, you broke up with me. That's what's going on." Yeah. So that party, that Halloween party, was a uh, full on. Yeah. And there were Mary and I both took acid. Yeah, there was some party. <laughs> and you know that that I I took acid a few times in my twenties and it was amazing with her. It was, she was a really great fun girl to hang out with and being in love and being on acid and having good friends in the music community. That's a really sweet experience. And so that kind of personifies the origins of the dead and, and, you know, sort of getting back to Jerry, I mean, so much has been said about him that there's not a lot more we could add other than his spirit of inventiveness and his, view on creativity and humanity being like, you know, life should be fun. Let's have a good time. Let's just see where it goes. 
and his willingness to experiment musically and socially, sociologically and all that stuff was a real beacon, I think. I was, I think about this a lot, how like people like Jerry, John Lennon, Jimi Hendrix, all have very memorable quotes about humanity and live and let live. And, you know, like when those in power love, love more than loving power. That's the Jimi Hendrix quote. Right, yeah. right, right. So, and how all of them, like hardcore inebriation, heroin, like really go to the wall, fucked out of your brain, unconsciousness was also a part of their life. And it just, for me personally, the seed it plants is I think, you know, maybe this planet really isn't created for light and love. And that's what happens is you get these beings who like, no, it is, you know, like we could do this, but you just hit that wall so much from childhood on. And you're like, I need a shot. And I'm not talking about in a glass. Unless your syringes. Well, it, you know, I took a college course on Jimi Hendrix, and I just wanted to spell right away the idea that he used heroin. Jer Jimmy hated needles, and it's a big misconception that he ever took heroin. It's not true. And, right. yeah, so uh, I get it, though, right? I mean, it's sort of part of the whole rock. You know, well, he died right? from Odin, right? From well, that's another misconception, right? Because I don't know. Well, I thought he did. I thought he OD'd at twenty five. He, he died at the age of twenty seven, oh, and oh, the oh. actual cause of death is asphyxiation, right? And the reason is because right. he threw up and he inhaled the vomit. But right. there's right. there's a whole other story about this that I don't want to get too deep into. I think right? you you and I have talked. Now you're ringing a bell. I think yeah. if it isn't on a podcast, you and I have spoken on this. Um, but so I want to I got a couple Jerry Garcia quotes for you. Okay. One of which I, he said, I think the Grateful Dead kind of represents the spirit of being able to go out and have an adventure in America at large. And I think that really represents in the pioneering spirit of American, you know, excellence. And another one about, um, as he said, is to get really high is to forget yourself and to forget yourself is to see everything else. And to see everything else is to become an understanding molecule in evolution, a conscious tool of the universe. And it just goes on and on. Like there's, of course, all of the song lyrics. Wow. Right? What's the guy's name who wrote Terrapin? Um, and, you know, he oh, was Robert of, Hunter. Yeah. Fucking his lyrics are fire. Fire. He's like, um, what's his name with Elton John, Bernie Toppin. I mean, those. Yeah, two he, he was definitely a major member of the Grateful Dead. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, and his there's whole there's a whole website that is devoted to the Grateful Dead lyrics. And it does it does an amazing job of cross referencing all of the old timey and old English thing. Like because Robert Hunter had, uh, 
you know, a real education in literacy. And, and so a lot of those Grateful Dead things are alluding to other literary works in the past. And that's one of the great things about them that people don't realize. Like most people think of them as just this crazy hippie jam band. But there was a level of craftsmanship that went into what they did, both in terms of the way the music's constructed, but then also the lyrical content that Robert Hunter and then also um, uh, Bob Weir worked with a guy, John Braylove, who was also, no, that was their recording engineer. Oh dear. Uh, so many names. What so little memory. Meadows. You know, else is like that rush. Their lyrics have huge depth of yeah. life. Cause I forget the drummer's name, Pert, Neil Pert. He was their lyricist and he was just deep into reading and bringing all that into their lyrics. So Jerry had this exceptional life that was born out of his spirit of adventure and willingness to try new things. And it was right place, right time, but it was also uncompromising vision. Um, and here's another quote that I love. You need music. He said, you need music. I don't know why it's probably one of those Joe Campbell questions, why we need ritual. We need magic and bliss, the power and myth and celebration and religion in our lives. And music is a good way to encapsulate a lot of it. So that's another great. All right, idea check this out. Here's a question. Cause on one of those dating apps, they do this thing like where, you know, this or that, and then you're supposed to sort of help match up. So they mm-hmm. asked this question and I'm asking you it. If you were going on a desert Island, and you had to choose either music or movies, one or the other. You can't have both. Which one would you choose? Well, one could assume that I'm going to have decent things to listen and watch them on, right? Absolutely. Best of the best. Let's say that. Okay. And you get, you're bringing your library, you know, so you're either bringing a movie library with you or a music library with you. I think music. That's where I went too. And yeah. I think that quote you just said of Jerry's is it. You don't need movies. Yeah, they're fucking important. Anyone who listens to our podcast knows we go into movies and entertainment all the fucking time. We have it on this episode, interestingly enough. But ultimately, at the end of the day, music. Yeah, because you can play the muse, the movie in your mind with music. Like, yeah, you know, back in the day before the saturation of content reached the level it's at now in the Internet age, you know, people would sit quietly in a room by themselves and because there were only three, three channels on TV to watch. And you could put on an album and a whole universe of imagination would open up in your, in yourself. You you hear people talk about those radio shows, like the show, you know, and how, you know what I heard? um, Fuck. Who was it? It was some horror, famous horror creator. Oh, I know who it was. The guy who did, um, um, Nope. That just opened. And, um, you know, from Keo and, um, God darn it. And get out. Yeah, I've heard this movie is amazing. It's the third in a trilogy. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, it's his third movie, but he was talking about horror. And he said, don't show the monster. Yeah. Then it's in their imagination. That's the whole thing. Like part of what he hated about, you know, he's naming off movies is you see the monster. You're like, oh, yeah, there's the monster. Okay. And then the rest of the movie, you're like, yeah, the, the monster. But if you don't see the monster, it's like, 
fuck, what's the mall? What is it? Oh, no. Which was so brilliant about Alien. Yeah. All this shit going down and you never see the source of it. Until about uh, two thirds into the film. Well, like even more than that, like when you actually see that alien monster, it's pretty close to the end. Yeah. Well, and interestingly, Jerry was a huge fan of comic books and specifically Frankenstein and Dracula, the horror movies. And that, that was one of the things that, you know, he had a kind of busted up childhood. There was stuff, you know, his mom ran a bar and his dad kind of split on the family and things like that. And, and he said later that one of the things that he sunk his teeth into was listening to music because, you know, they were um, a musical family. And then also reading old comic books like Dracula and, and Frankenstein and seeing old black and white movies. And apparently Frankenstein was one of his favorites. Hmm. He would go back to that again and again. Um, and he, later on, you know, he, he would do art, you know, and there was this, he would paint and, you know, there've been, all kinds of products made out of his various paintings. I don't think he ever intended any of that stuff to really be commercial, but you know, there's one of his pen drawings is, is a Frankenstein face. Mm. And it's a great piece of art to Google. If you're listening to this program, just yeah, check you it know out. What that just reminded me of is what art pieces, his guitars were known to be. And I forget the guy who made those, but they're, you know, the wolf. Yeah. Well, it started out with the wolf which is um what was that craftsman's name i'm looking it up uh doug Irwin. okay was his name and he built the wolf um wolf junior tiger rosebud and eagle and those were really the first custom you know full custom guitars that that jerry commissioned yeah um, and i mean what a amazing legacy doug Irwin had you yeah, know yeah. to to be the guy that jerry garcia decided he wanted more than one of the guitars from yeah because the wolf was such a fucking masterpiece yeah it started out and um my understanding is that they were super hard woods mm-hmm. and that that was part of what was so interesting about it um and it says here that wolf jr is um for Jerry, but that Jerry didn't actually use, I think. Yeah. He never got it before he died and it was going to be the next level. But the evolution of these instruments was that over time it got to be too heavy. Like I, one Mm -hmm. of the things I lived in mill Valley and the chiropractor that was right across the street from where I lived just happened to be Jerry's chiropractor. And so there would be times when I would see Jerry's Porsche and, you know, um, I talked to the chiropractor and he was super cagey. Like he knew better than to talk about Jerry, but he did acknowledge that he was working on him. And he would say, yeah, like this standing up there holding a heavy piece of wood for three hours a night, 275 or 300 nights a year is a big deal. And Mm. uh, so over time, Doug Irwin was tasked with building guitars that sounded as good, but weren't as heavy because of the the way they would cause back problems for Jerry as he got older and more decrepit. Um, And he was, Jerry was such an innovative player for his time. You know, Mm -hmm. his style, it's like one of those things, like when you hear Jimmy Page or you hear Carlos Santana, or you hear Jimi Hendrix or you hear Jerry Garcia, you can know pretty much from one note who you're listening to. Right. And 
you know, that's a really powerful legacy to leave the music world, to have such a complete embedding of your soul into the sound that, you know, it one note and you can tell who it is. Yeah. Um, you know, I was just thinking as you're talking about the dead and how like a lot of the dead in my mind, I think of folksy hippie rock, you know, but they killed on Route 66. They would kill that song, you know, like they when they rocked out, they. Well, yeah, I mean, one notes. one distinction you can make is the, you know, Jerry on heroin versus Jerry not on heroin. Oh, yeah. And there were several eras yeah. of that, especially later in his life. <laughs> now and, we're getting into dead edge. <laughs> right. And, and so like the wine. Is that a 78, Jerry? Because, you know, that's when he was having trouble with Mountain Girl. Well, and Europe 72 is is like, and that's the thing. Once you start down this road with Deadheads, there's like the arguments begin. Like, what's the best era? What's the best right. sounding? But that Mountain Dew that's on the double live, that, you know, the ice cream cone in the head. Yeah, Europe, Europe 72. Yeah, that is so fucking It's transcendent. Awesome. Yeah. God. And later on, I got to um, meet uh, the guy who did the recording on that album. Wow. Um, his nickname is The Wiz. His name is Dennis Leonard. And uh, Dennis was road crew on the Europe crew, and he was the recordist. And um, ultimately, I think they let him mix um, Europe 72. And he worked at Skywalker Ranch when I was working there, and I got to know him a little bit. Um, and that was really amazing. Again, there's this thing about the dead community where their devotion to technical perfection is really high. But they don't have the kind of like hard ass out, you know, like kind of approach. They're like perfectionists and, and, but they're not assholes about it. So there's this warmth and this friendliness that goes with it. But the level of dedication that they did to what they is just off the hook. Well, that reminds me of you and I. Like for Thursday night, we were fully prepared. Had we get, gotten an opportunity to work with David? And I think that's part of it. Like, we're totally cool, totally just glad to be there, having a great time. And also our professionalism, we are serious about together. Like, you're serious, I'm serious. There's not, neither of us more serious than the other, which I think just lifts the whole thing. Well, we recognize that devotion to craft is what creates the gateway to bliss. Knock on wood. I just, hey, have you um, have you checked out these free episodes that Dave gave us? Oh, there's episodes. I didn't see yeah, that. I, this, yeah, so QR code. This QR and, code. Wow. So those of you who are watching could have grabbed that really quickly. Yeah, you could freeze frame. And um, there's two episodes because he has a pay. Uh, podcast that he did in oh. 2020, I think 20 or 20 or last year. Anyway, I didn't know. Yeah. And um, so, so there's, there's two, two free, free episodes. episodes in there yeah. that are designed to get and us. They're the brilliant. Out. They're brilliant. And one of them is about creativity. Like, you know how he's totally into Wu-Tang. Yeah. And uh, one of the guys from Wu-Tang's uh, on there and talking about two cool things. I think you'll really appreciate one is they're talking about this, um, I think it's called the Black Album. 
I forget what it's called anyway. And like, why isn't it out yet? The, the follow up to it. He's all, when, when I get together with, and he names the other gentleman whose name I can't remember at the moment, like we're brothers first. We're coming together as brothers. And then if the creativity happens, cool. Like they don't force the creativity. It's a muse thing. It's an ethereal thing. Yeah. And the and other thing about Jerry Garcia. So there's this mastery that goes with being fully committed, totally devoted to your craft as if your life depends on it. And then at the same time, playing with it as if it doesn't matter what happens. Right. And then the other thing that he, they mentioned that I think you'll appreciate is being in charge of your own music. They were super down on Spotify, like fuck Spotify. And they quoted Prince who said, I made more money on my first album when I left Warner brothers, which was the, um, the one in the blue suit, wasn't it? Wasn't that his first album on his own? I don't um, remember. Uh, musicology, was that it? No, 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 no. Um, anyway, the point is... Yeah, anyway, the point is, so Prince said he made more on that album than he had in all his other albums combined. And you think about that, Purple Rain is part of that legacy, 1999, you know? Like, so to make more... so he. He made more money in selling 3 million albums than in 300 million albums. Right. He made more money on the record we don't remember the name of. Right. Exactly. <laughs> I can fucking picture it, too. I think it's the one that has Love Sexy, Alphabet Street, but I think... Oh, well, Love Sexy is the name of the album, Love Sexy. See, I think I'm wrong. I don't think that's it. Then. Yeah. Alphabet oh. Street was part of the movie Alphabet Street. No, it wasn't. It's not... Uh uh-uh. Um ding ding diddle diddle. Here's the Google type type type. Raven to the Joy Fantastic. Uh, okay, yeah. That that came out um winter of nineteen ninety eight. Nine. Right. He dropped it on New Year's Eve. That was the, the New Year's Eve show. And so he made more money on that record than, than all the other albums combined. combined. Yeah. 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 Well, Grateful Dead and Jerry had a lot of ups and downs with re- related to money. Like they were very, very successful at touring and they kept themselves going through touring. It wasn't through album sales. And it wasn't until I think it was like 89 when the album Touch Touch Gray. Gray came out yeah. that they finally had a hit thanks yeah. to MTV. Yeah. And that, that was, you know, mixed bag because it brought in a lot of new untrained deadheads into the scene and the old deadheads kind of got a little upset at the the messiness of of these these young whippersnappers i think uh, for a deadhead yeah exactly i was just gonna say the same thing for a deadhead to be talking shit about messiness it's right. a little messy in itself right um and that ultimately made jerry's life a lot more difficult was that success because there was pressure at that point, like for him, one of the things he said was, you know, he really liked it when they were doing the acid tests because they could play or not play. Yeah. And it wasn't necessary for them to be the focus. And then later, as life progressed, it was that they had to play. 
And the way they ran their business was really um, avant-garde for the recording industries. It was a big family. And so, like, even the roadies got paid really, you know, reasonably well. And, you know, I think later on that shifted a little bit as management changed and things like that. But still, there was this level of a lot of families were depending on the Grateful Dead for their income. And so Jerry probably would have lived longer if he had retired um, and stopped touring right at the time of his death because he was stressed out and he wasn't having as much fun. And it was like, it was a real obligation to go out there just to keep the machine running and to keep everybody fed. Well, should we send happy birthday to Jerry to just round this episode off? Yeah. Thank Uh, you so much, Jerry. And, and by the way, speaking of guitars, here's a model that I have a scale model of Rosebud. Rosebud. Yeah, and I, ha- I also have Tiger up here. Wow. Um, and these are cool. That's they have little strings on them. And it's that's, real wood. That's how iconic they are, man. People have little statues of them. Yeah. And uh, they weren't cheap. <laughs> <laughs> but definitely. Hey, wasn't there a story about one of them getting stolen or something happening where the guy who's made those was broke or. I'm not sure about that. I I definitely don't know enough to speak authoritatively on that subject. Um, But I know that after Jerry's death, there was a battle over who owned the guitars. Maybe that's what I'm thinking of. Um, Whether they were corporate property or personal property. And there was a whole like lawsuit and you yeah. know that that was the ugly side that's of that's what i think it was like jerry had told him like i'm giving these back to you as part of when i, when I passed but it never was officially written down so right yeah, and that, i think eventually yeah. he got a doug Irwin got a couple of them back and was able to then sell them at auction auction right and um you know and then doug died not long after that so are you ready yeah Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, Captain Minion. Happy birthday, dear Noodleopolis. Happy birthday. Recording stopped.